Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. We're at CanadianDimension.com. On the program today, I'm going to have a conversation with Canadian auto workers economist Jim Stanford, and he's going to talk about Canada's so-called economic recovery. And I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Maria Paez-Victor, who is part of a group called Latinas, which is the National Council for Latin American Women in Canada. She'll be chatting to us about the mainstream media's campaign against Hugo Chavez. And I'll have a conversation with Toronto Star columnist Haroon Siddiqui, and he's going to talk to us about the recent goings-on at Rights and Democracy. We'll also have the alert headlines. Music is the weapon. And Around the Left in Seven Days. And these are the alert headlines for the week of February 11th, 2010. The world's leading industrialized nations have pledged to write off the debt that Haiti owes them. Canada's finance minister, Jim Flaherty, announced at a summit in Iqaluit that the G7 countries plan to cancel Haiti's bilateral debts. Flaherty said he would encourage international leaders to do the same. Some $1.2 billion of Haiti's debts to countries and international lending bodies has already been cancelled. Last June, the international community agreed to cancel some of the country's $1.9 billion debt owed to buy and multilateral lenders, including the IMF, World Bank and the U.S. government. The U.K. charity Oxfam has urged the writing off of about an additional $900 million that Haiti still owes to donor countries and institutions. Over a million Haitians have still not received any international food assistance nearly a month after the island's devastating earthquake. On February 4th, the UN's World Food Program reported they had given some food to over a million people. The UN acknowledges that it, is still, it still needs to reach another one million people. The Associated Press reported that people in Haiti at small protests were holding up banners reading, Help us, we're starving. American citizens are being placed on a secret hit list of people whom President Obama has personally authorized to be killed. The Obama administration has acknowledged its continuing a Bush-era policy authorizing the killing of U.S. citizens abroad. The confirmation came from Director of National Intelligence Dennis Blair in congressional testimony last week. Blair said being a U.S. citizen will not spare an American from getting assassinated by military or intelligence operatives overseas if the individual is working with terrorists and planning to attack fellow Americans. Critics say the policy violates the U.S. Constitution and the foundations of the American legal system. In the United States, an army sergeant who served in Iraq has been accused of waterboarding his four-year-old daughter because she refused to recite her ABCs. 27-year-old Joshua Tabor was arrested last week and charged with assaulting a child. Police in Washington state said the Iraq War veteran would sit his daughter on the edge of the bathroom sink and hold her head down until it was nearly submerged in water, dunking her if she refused to recite the alphabet. International pressure for new sanctions against Iran is growing after Tehran announced more moves to expand nuclear fuel production and enrichment plants. The United States, France and Israel have led calls for what would be a fourth set of sanctions against Iran. 
The Pentagon said the United States wanted a U.N. Security Council resolution on Iran within weeks. Iran's ambassador to the International Atomic Energy Agency said Iran was forced to begin refining uranium to a higher level by international powers, who for months ignored the country's proposal for a fuel swap. With almost all the ballots counted in Ukraine, opposition leader Viktor Yanukovych is on course to become Ukraine's next president. The Russian-backed Yanukovych won about 49% of the vote, beating Ukrainian Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko, who has yet to concede defeat. Yanukovych's victory has been described as an, an extraordinary comeback after his defeat five years ago in the so-called Orange Revolution at the hands of Viktor Yushchenko, whom he is set to replace as president. And those are the alert headlines for the week of February 11th, 2010. And now for Around the Left for the week of February 11th, 2010. On February 13th, there will be a fundraising screening of Under Rich Earth, Malcolm Rogue's documentary about the struggle between the global mining corporation Ascendant and the people of Ecuador's Intag Valley. The screening will be held at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto. Proceeds from the event will help to pay for the making of the film and to support two Ecuadorian community organizations that are featured in the film. DV copies will be available. The screening begins at 6.30 p.m. and a Q&A with the director will follow the screening. Over 500 Indigenous women have been murdered or gone missing most over the last 30 years. On February 14th, the 5th Annual Rally for Our Missing Sisters will take place in Toronto. Participants in this rally will demonstrate against the complicity of the state in the ongoing genocide of Indigenous women and the impunity of state institutions and actors that prevents justice for all Indigenous peoples. To participate, meet at Toronto Police Headquarters, 40 College Street at Bay at 12 p.m. The West End Cultural Centre and the Winnipeg Haiti Solidarity Group are hosting a Haiti Relief Fundraiser on February 11th. The performers include the Weaker Than's John Sampson, Ruth Moody and Nikki Mehta of the Wayland Jennies and Daniel R.O.A. Tickets are $15 in advance and are available at Mondragon and the West End Cultural Centre or through Ticketmaster. John S. Saul is an anti-apartheid and liberation support movement activist in both Canada and Southern Africa. His recent book, Revolutionary Traveler, is a unique memoir drawing on the lifetime of stories about his involvement in these movements and capped by some longer summary pieces on the global processes of empire and decolonization. John S. Saul will be at Type Books in Toronto on February the 11th to launch his book. The event begins at 7 p.m. To coincide with the Olympic opening ceremonies and the arrival of the Olympic torch, Take Back Our City is hosting a march of their own. Meet at the Vancouver Art Gallery at 3 p.m. on February 12th to join in. And that is Around the Left for the week of February the 11th, 2010. This is Alert Radio, and I'm Jeff Hughes. We have CAW economist Jim Stanford on the line. Jim is currently on assignment in New Zealand, where we reached him. Jim, welcome back to Alert Radio. Hi, Jeff. It's always good to be with you guys. Well, thanks for coming on the program again. Now, we want to talk about the economic 
recovery. Can you tell us where it's at? And let's start with the global perspective first. The recovery. What recovery? Have you seen the recovery? I haven't. I'm still looking for it. I mean, they say there's a recovery in the sense that global GDP has stopped falling and uh, in in many countries has started growing again. Uh, So if you use that kind of technical definition, you could say maybe we're in the beginning stages of a recovery. But, uh, you know, in terms of uh, employment opportunities, uh, people's sense of security, people's well-being, I refuse to say that we're in a recovery. Uh, We're still in some very tough times. Now, globally, it looks like, um, you know, the the recession has probably bottomed out, and we are seeing some GDP growth starting in in certain places, including in Canada. Uh, China is uh, leading the way. How ironic that uh, this kind of quasi-capitalist, quasi-communist country should save capitalism from the its own uh, its own failures, but that's exactly what happened. It was the strongest uh, growing part of the economy, and they and the government intervention there kept it growing despite the world recession. And now everyone else is uh, gradually coming along. But it's going to be another uh, two to three to four years at least before it really feels like anything that I would call a recovery. Okay, and now about uh, Canada. Well, it's kind of the same story here. You know, uh, the Harper government has been patting itself on the back for the last year, saying, oh, we're so smart, we're such effective economic managers. That's how we avoided uh, the worst uh, of the recession. And it is certainly true that the recession was not as bad here as it was in America, Uh, partly, I think, because our banking system is better regulated here than it is in America. Uh, So we didn't have quite the same uh, chaos uh, on the financial side of things as they did in America. But, uh, again, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. You know, we've still got uh, official unemployment uh, of around 8.5%. True unemployment, if you count the hidden unemployed, uh, involuntary part-time workers, people who've given up looking for work, true unemployment uh, is more like 12%, and uh, incomes uh, are totally uh, stagnant. Now, again, we are seeing some signs of uh, uh, GDP growth, uh, slow, uneven, and some signs of job growth so far all in part-time work. Uh, so, you know, it could be that the worst is behind us, but again, I wouldn't call this a recovery, not yet, and I don't think it will feel like one for a couple of years more. Well, as you know, Jim, there is some debate about whether more stimuli is needed or whether now is the time to start uh, backing off on this public spending and whether it's time to reduce the deficit and the ballooning public debt. So what's your take on this? Is the issue um, about the growing public debt a real economic one or more ideologically based? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question, Jeff. And ironically, you know what could be the worst lasting consequence? of this whole financial crisis and global recession, the worst lasting consequence could be that it's giving the deficit hawks another excuse to really come after our public programs, public services, public institutions. Uh, For the first few months of the recession, everyone, even the conservatives, accepted that the government had to uh, go into deficit and increase spending uh, to try and, um, you know, stop the recession from getting even deeper. But now, uh, now that they claim the recovery is on, and we've already seen that's kind of premature, now they're coming after uh, the public sector with all guns uh, blazing, and you're getting all kinds of exaggerated fear-mongering about uh, the debt crisis, uh, public uh, debt. We're digging ourselves into a hole, and that's absolute nonsense, absolute ideological nonsense. 
Uh, Canada's uh, federal debt is less than 30% of GDP. That's very low compared to other countries. And our deficit, believe it or not, even though it's big in dollar terms, is not large relative to our GDP. And given that uh, we still got, you know, at least 10% of Canadians unemployed, uh, if you use a real measure, then uh, this is a time to be spending more on, on public works, not less. The, the other irony is that at the federal level in particular, we never had much of a stimulus uh, effort. You know, the, the central bank cut interest rates, yes, and some provinces and municipalities spent a lot on projects, but the Harper government has been very slow in actually uh, getting the money out the door and stimulating real work. It's been more about optics than about real uh, real stimulus. So uh, I, I predict that the next couple of years are going to mark some incredible battles at every level, municipal, provincial, and federal, uh, to try and preserve the public services that we need for our quality of life uh, against those who say, oh, the deficit is a, a huge monster, we have to slay it, we have to get rid of those programs. Uh, it's going to be like the deficit battles we fought um, in the mid-90s, about 15 years ago, it's going to be a total repeat of those of those battles. Well, is there never a problem with public debt? What about Greece? Well, uh, Greece uh, has uh, has higher debt, uh, for sure, but even in Greece, it's the situation, the, 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 uh, the real challenge for the country is going to be to put people back to work, not to slash programs, and they are having some big battles. The unions and other progressive forces in, in Greece are really trying to resist this right-wing uh, slash-and-burn uh, debt-cutting exercise. Now, I'm not suggesting that public debt never matters. Uh, obviously, there are limits to how much debt you can take on. But at the same time, there are other ways you can look at for financing uh, the debt. Rather than always going to the bond markets and the, and the commercial brokers, uh, they're the ones who got us into this mess in the first place, remember. Uh, you can uh, try to use other mechanisms uh, to finance uh, government debt that are lower cost and, and more predictable, using your own government banks, for example, uh, to finance some of it, or selling uh, selling savings bonds to uh, your citizens. So there are certainly limits to how far debt can, can rise, but in Canada, uh, we are far, far away from that. And uh, what we're seeing now is not so much a real debt crisis in any way, shape, or form. What we're seeing is people who want government downsized and want more of our uh, assets turned over to the private sector. They're taking advantage of this moment to push that ideology forward. That's what this is about, not about the real economics of debt. This is Alert Radio. We're at CanadianDimension.com slash alert, and we're speaking to Jim Stanford. Now, I'd like to ask you about your take on Canada's fiscal situation. Should Finance Minister Jim Flaherty be planning another stimulus in his March budget along the lines of the one that Obama Obama has proposed in the U.S.? Well, there again, we get back to this issue. I mean, Harper and uh, Flaherty claim that they had a gigantic stimulus uh, package. They said it was, uh, you know, something like 2% of GDP uh, over two years. But in practice, they added up all kinds of things in that uh, number, that weren't really what you'd call uh, stimulus. They included tax cuts. Uh, they included even the in, the normal increase in unemployment insurance benefits that resulted from people losing their jobs. You know, well, that's not actually stimulus. That's just the normal operation of uh, of the unemployment insurance system. Um, they even included the uh, value of the loans that they gave to the uh, auto companies as part of the, uh, you know, the rescue effort uh, last year. That, again, was, uh, you know, important, but you don't really call that stimulus. 
stimulus is where you actually put money into work uh, in the economy, and there's been surprisingly little of it uh, from the uh, federal government. Uh, I worked on a study uh, with David McDonald uh, at the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and we tried to measure the actual stimulus uh, effort by the federal government, and it was shockingly uh, small. The uh, Americans' uh, effort was seven times as large as ours in uh, proportionate uh, terms. They have done uh, a much more aggressive job. Now, true, their their situation was a lot worse than ours. But um, at any rate, uh, I think the Harper government, instead of uh, saying, yes, now we're going to cut back everything, and you can see them getting ready to uh, impose wage freezes or wage cuts on public sector workers, you can see them getting ready to sell off Crown corporations uh, as part of this uh, big uh, battle against the almighty deficit. Instead of that, they should actually be focusing on getting uh, all those unemployed Canadians back to work. They go back to work, they pay taxes, and lo and behold, uh, the deficit shrinks. That's the best way to do it. The uh, alternative federal budget project, you know, that's that effort that started in Winnipeg, actually, with uh, John Walksley and the Choices folks. It still carries on uh, at the federal level. They will be showing, uh, I think, a much more uh, realistic way for the federal government to move forward instead of the cutbacks that we can expect from Flaherty. Now, finally, what do you think about Paul Volcker's plan in the U.S. to restructure banking so as to avoid the financial speculation that sparked the economic crisis? First, explain to our listeners how it would work, and then tell us your opinion of it and whether we need to be doing something like that in Canada. Well, uh, Jess, I, I, I think that um, this is the great unanswered question of this whole uh, financial crisis. Uh, is what are we going to do with the banking system? And, uh, you know, the finance ministers uh, uh, from around the world uh, have met a few times since the crisis started just this week. They were meeting up in a Callaway. Um, and, you know, they all pledged that we have to change the system so it never happens again. But so far, uh, we haven't seen uh, a lot of action uh, on that front. Remember, the financial industry is an incredibly powerful vested interest. And uh, they have been very, very fiercely resisting any efforts that would really constrain their power uh, at all. And there's a lot of suggestions uh, uh, out there. Uh, Volcker's uh, was one of them, but there's a, a group from the United Nations that has Joseph Stiglitz in it that uh, I think uh, has also uh, done a lot of work. Uh, proposals that would involve uh, improving the uh, capital constraints on the bank so they have to keep more money safe in their vaults that would limit the amount that they can borrow money to play the markets, um, and that in, in some cases would even limit the international flow of these vast sums of money. I think uh, Obama's proposals last uh, last week, if anything, uh, are some of the best ones yet. I know Obama, because he's so much under attack in America, he's suddenly kind of trying to play the populist now, uh, but his proposals, which would limit the amount of money banks can use from your own deposits, to play the stock market. That's exactly the kind of thing that we would need if we really wanted to prevent a repeat of that uh, bubble. Uh, it's going to involve a whole set of regulations that limit uh, what the financiers are able to do with, uh, with that money. But at this point, I'm not optimistic that uh, much is going to happen. Um, the finance ministers are going to be more worried about managing the optics of it uh, without actually changing how the financial system uh, is working. And I think uh, it'll take a lot more political pressure uh, from uh, the populations of these countries to try and get those finance ministers to uh, to actually change anything.
Well, Jim, thank you for taking the time out of your New Zealand summer to uh, speak to us here on Alert Radio, where we're still enjoying a Winnipeg winter. Very good, Jeff. I'm glad to be with you. Jim Stanford, economist with the Canadian Auto Workers, thanks for joining us on Alert Radio. This is Alert Radio, CanadianDimension.com. Haroon Siddiqui is an award-winning journalist and a member of the Order of Canada. He was an editor of the Toronto Star for many years and currently writes a twice-weekly column in the Star. Welcome to Alert Radio, Haroon Siddiqui. Good evening. How are you? Very well, thank you. We're glad to have you on the program. My pleasure. Your February 7th column is titled... the. PM's Gang of Seven provides a glimpse of reform politics. Right. We want you to talk about that column. First, though, can you give us some background by telling us about the situation at Rights and Democracy over the past few months and a little bit about the mandate. Uh, tell our listeners across the country um, of the mandate of Rights and Democracy. You see, if you recall Rights and Democracy, it had a different name before, was established, ironically, by another conservative prime minister, but a more enlightened one, Brian Mulroney, in 1986. Um, And the idea was uh, that this would be an arms-length independent agency uh, which would report directly to Parliament, not the prime minister's office. And the mandate given by Parliament was that this centre would work for, and I quote, the promotion, development, and strengthening of democratic and human rights institutions and programs that give effect to the rights and freedoms enshrined in the International Bill of Human Rights. So the idea here is to advance human rights around the globe as much as you can with a limited, uh, with a limited budget. Um, and it makes sense because what it does is it works, it does its work around the troubled spots of the world, Afghanistan, Haiti, places like that. And it works to strengthen democracy, the rule of law, and human rights, which in turn actually augment the foreign policy goals of the Canadian government, uh, regardless of their political stripe. So that is the background to this particular center, and that's why it's important. And can you tell us about developments over the last few months? Yeah, what has happened is that the Prime Minister, Mr. Harper, has been appointing his own people to the board, which is his prime ministerial prerogative, no uh, question about that. Um, And then what has happened is that the people who have taken it over have slowly but surely um, trying to change the mandate and certainly the direction. Um, how do we know that? We are not reading into their minds or read, looking into their hearts, but by judging them by their actions. Um, they were particularly perturbed that the center had given three grants to three human rights institutions in the Middle East on uh, either side of the Arab-Israeli divide, including Betzalem, which is a highly respected Israeli human rights agency. And these and the other were Al-Haq and Al-Mazen. One is based in the West Bank. The other is based in in the Gaza Strip. 
Uh, and what they were doing is they were looking at the possible human rights violations of both Israel and the Palestinians, in this case Hamas, following the uh, Israeli war on Gaza last year. Um, and this really upset some of the new members, including the chair, Oral Braun, who is a professor at political science at the University of Toronto. And this was, they, the new members were briefed, I'm told, by the president, Mr. Beauregard, and this is also important who Mr. Remy Beauregard was. Remy Beauregard was a president who was chosen um, in 2008. He's a highly respected figure. He's a former executive director of the Ontario Human Rights Commission and who had served under both uh, the NDP Premier Bob Ray and later under the Conservative Premier Mike Harris. And he was brought in precisely because he was a highly respected figure in the human rights struggle. He was also instrumental in having done a lot of human rights work for the United Nations in places like Rwanda and so on. So it's not as if, um, as if he was a nobody, but he was the one who had um, authorized those three grants, and the new members of the board were quite upset by it. Um, and as I'm told this was raised as early as last March, about a year ago, and Mr. Beauregard, according to my informants, had agreed, uh, okay, you have an objection to that, that constitutes a minimal part of the mandate of our work. They get $11 million from, the, from Parliament every year, and these grants total $30,000 and nothing more, and if you object, we shall not give more grants. Um, and the other members of the board, this is a 13-member board of which seven were lined on one side and the six were lined on the other, and the six dissident directors simply kept saying, this is resolved now and let's move forward. But obviously that was not good enough for Mr. Braun and company. Um, they're entitled to it. We are entitled to examine their actions and so on. And it turns out that they... Uh, tried to um, find fault with Mr. Beauregard that he was not a good director. There were other complaints that they raised saying there is lack of accountability, that the finances were somehow not in order, which is uh, totally rejected by three former, four former presidents whom I've spoken to, including Alan Broadbent and Warren Allman, uh, highly respected people, who said, um, the accusation of a lack of transparency or lack of financial acumen uh, predated Mr. Beauregard, and in fact, Mr. Beauregard had taken steps to correct those things, which is why the board, the new board, uh, as early as last spring, had given him a terrific um, annual assessment saying he has been a breath of fresh air and he has done a lot of work. But the new board members were not satisfied, and they kept going after him, and they rewrote um, a yearly assessment of him, overturning, in effect, what was a previously positive assessment. Haroon Siddiqui, we'd like you to name names, please, if you would now. Can you list the Gang of Seven and say a few words about each of them? No, no, I mean, the, the, the chair is Oral Brown. As I said, he's a professor of political science at the U of T, and he has long been active in Bene Brit, which is his prerogative. Jacques Gauthier is a Toronto lawyer, and he's the board vice chair. And his Ph.D. thesis had argued that East Jerusalem belongs to Jews and not Palestinians. That is, he's entitled to that view, except 
that is contrary to international consensus and Canadian foreign policy. Our embassy is in Tel Aviv, not Jerusalem, and that is so for a reason, because East Jerusalem is occupied territory. The third member is Brad Farquhar, uh, and he's a management consultant in Regina, and he ran against uh, liberal Ralph Goodell in the 2006 election. And according to the Canadian Press News Agency, he ran it on an anti-gay platform. The next one on the list is Marco Navarro Jenny, and he is another conservative partisan, and he teaches political science at a college in Calgary. And again, according to CP, he mocks climate change, and on his Twitter, he promotes pro-Guantanamo Bay polls. The next guy is a professor again, Elliot Tepper, and he teaches political science at Carlton. He's a very respected political scientist. But he was one of those three people whose resignation the staff had demanded because he was one of those three people who was harassing Mr. Buregard and staff. There's David Maitas, who is a respected Winnipeg lawyer. Um, he had served on the board earlier under the Liberals. He's also a long-standing legal counsel for B'nai B'rit, as he's, of course, entitled to. And the last one is Michael Van Pelt, and he is another conservative partisan, and he heads something called CARDUS, which is a think tank which is committed to, and I quote here, the dynamic current of Christian thought, changing hearts and minds, institutions and networks with a gospel-oriented world view. Unquote. So the, here are the seven people. It's not a question of whether I agree with them or you disagree with them. Or it's not even an issue of right or left. It's not even an issue of um, how strongly they are pro or anti-Israel. Everyone is entitled to their view, and everyone is entitled to promote any cause. The real issue here is, uh, are really two. One, has the prime minister, in effect, um, squelched and another independent agency, as he has done with the Military Police Commission and Parliamentary Budget Officer and the Nuclear Safety Head and so on. That's one issue which he seems to have. And B, are these individuals um, really the right individuals to guide uh, rights and democracy? Here's an institution dedicated to human rights, uh, and here are seven people who don't seem to believe either in democracy or in rights because they don't really... Um, they're quite intolerant of contrarian points of view, people who don't agree with them. So that's the real issue here. Has the mandate of the commission been, um, been violated and being violated by these people? That is the real issue here. So why should Canadians going about their everyday lives be concerned about what's happening in uh, these political circles Oh, that. they should be concerned for the same reason that they are concerned about the Prime Minister proroguing Parliament, for example. And the, the, the customary conventional wisdom was no Canadian, Canadians don't care about this issue, and that's why the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament for a second year in a row. Uh, and lo and behold, what do we find? We find that Canadians do care about this issue because it violates long-standing traditions. It uh, indicates a kind of dictatorial or at least authoritarian tendency on the part of the Prime Minister. Um, Canadians do care, obviously, why the police, Military Police Commission has been squashed, and we do not have debate and discussion uh, and a 
proper probe about potential possible human rights viola- violations on the Afghan detainee issue. I mean, Canadians do care, obviously. Canadians do care that the parliamentary budget officer has the independence to pursue his mandate. Uh, and that's for the same reason that people can care and should care and do care about rights and democracy. You know, if, if the feedback to my columns is any indication, Canadians do care. So it's really the media that's out to lunch saying and promoting this notion that Canadians don't care. Well, it's not true. This is a different kind of media, and we would like to thank you for participating. Haroon Siddiqui, columnist for the Toronto Star and member of the Order of Canada, we appreciate you joining us here on Alert Radio. My pleasure. Thank Thank you. past few weeks, the mainstream media has been full of stories claiming that Hugo Chavez's regime in Venezuela is falling apart, its economy is in shambles with hyperinflation, and Chavez's popularity at an all-time low. Is any of this true? Well, we're going to ask that question of Dr. Maria Paez Victor of the Louis Riel Bolivarian Circle. She is Venezuelan and active in Venezuelan solidarity work in Toronto. She's also the spokesperson for the Louis Riel Bolivarian Circle, as well as the policy director for the National Council for Latin American Women in Canada. Maria Paez Victor, welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. Thank you Um, so much. As we have said in the introduction, if you believe what they say, uh, Venezuela is in a huge mess. The Bolivarian Revolution is proving to be a big failure. Hugo Chavez is all but finished. We have a recent report by Ian James, the Caracas Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. And I'm going to read you what he says, and I want you to comment on each of the claims briefly. So first off, uh, state-imposed economic controls have failed to contain 25% inflation, rapidly eroding the earnings of the poor who have been Chavez's core of political support. Chavez's devaluation of the currency this month aimed at allowing the government finances to boost public spending is is expected to push prices even higher. What's your comment on that, Dr. Victor? Well, first of all, I have to say that um, people are led to believe that what the what the news that one reads in the newspapers or sees on the TV is unadulterated fact. But in this age uh, of media conglomerates, the media outlets are trying to influence political events. They're trying to define the reality according to their ideologies. So um, Ian James, for example, is uh, from the Associated Press, has just uh, uh, expressed the opinion of the opposition, not he did not go out to find, you know, um, the truth of the situation. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to, uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, address the issue of is the economy in shambles? Well, contrary to what he is saying, what anyone has said, the Venezuelan economy is thriving. Venezuela is one of the countries that has been the least affected by the international financial crisis for two main reasons. It has very little international debt and it has saved it has saved and has very healthy reserves. Uh, an economy in shambles. Well, let's look at it. Let's look at economic growth. Do you know what the economic growth in Canada is? It's in, in the year 2009, it was 0.6. In the United States, it was 1.3. Uh, 
Venezuela's economic growth in 2009 was 4.9. Let's look at the trade balance. Well, the trade balance in Canada is $12.8 billion. Okay. The, the, the trade balance in Venezuela is $48.4 billion. And the trade balance or deficit in the United States is $568 billion minus. So this is a very healthy trade balance, very healthy economic growth. The public debt as a, as a percentage of GDP, well, in Canada, the public debt is 62.3%. In the United States, it's 60.8%. Venezuela's is 174 This is a government that is not in debt. Now, a- another important thing is uh, military expenditure. In right. Canada, it's low, 1.1. The United States is 4.1. And Venezuela is 1.2. Well, compare that to Colombia, which is 3.4, almost the same as the United States. Now, this fellow talks about inflation. Inflation is high in Venezuela because it's high at 22%. But what people don't understand is that Venezuelans don't see that because they have been used to very high inflation. During the last government, the inflation was 57%. Wow. So Venezuelans think, oh, you know, it's not so bad. It's only 22%. Now, this is also important because you can't just take inflation. Uh, up, and you have to look at it uh, to the other things that are happening. For example, unemployment. Well, unemployment in, in, in Canada is 6%. In the United States, 7%. In, in Venezuela, it's 7%. Right. And you say, well, that's pretty high for a smaller country. Well, not if you realize that when Chavez came to be elected, it was 14.6%. So, in fact, it's the lowest unemployment in 10 years. And so now, we're really getting one side here, are we not? One side. And do you know where I got my da- data? Where? My data comes from the CIA country reports. So I'm giving you data from the CIA. So you see how people uh, manipulate this. Then President Chavez's popularity is plummeting. Well, I'd like to know where this man was, was when he was in, in Venezuela. Maybe he was um, living only with the opposition people because <laughs> since he has been elected, his popularity has not gone lower than 50%. And today's polls show that his popularity is at 58.3%. Now, that's massive, okay? Right. Massive. Then look at the polls about the party. Well, his party, the PSUV, um, has a massive lead. Uh, when, when, when you look at the popularity, people are responding. It's 33.8% prefer it. The next party after that, Nuevo Tiempo, is 6%. And the one after that is 5%. So you, you, you kind of say, well, this is a kind of a plummeting. When, when his party is 33% and 58.3% um, support him. So you see, this is a, a, a great um, uh, media campaign that is a concerted effort to, to destabilize the government. Now, wh- why? It's, they've been doing this for some time, but what is it that's happening right now? What's happening right now is that it's on September 26th of this year, they're going to be parliamentary elections. And so for these elections, what we are vision, uh, looking at right now is a desperate attempt to destabilize the government through those elections, like ha- it happened in Ukraine, like it happened in Yugoslavia, in Iran, in Georgia. So what do they want to do? They want to divide the forces that support Chavez. 
Right. You know, they want to divide them. And, 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 you know, the opposition is really a satellite of the U.S. interest in that country. And, and their electoral campaign is guided by the United States um, um, personnel down there. Okay. And second of all, they want to discredit the Chavez government internationally and uh, demonize uh, Chavez. Now, this is necessary if there's going to be any kind of military action against Venezuela. Right. So this is, this is what is behind all of this. Um, you know, um, when, when I say a military action, I am not uh, talking uh, flippantly. Uh, in the last 100 years, there have been uh, 90 uh, military, military invasions and, um, and coups uh, orchestrated by the United States and Latin America. But right now, we are in uh, what is called the fourth, fourth war uh, generation, a fourth generation war tactic. And what it is, is part of the United States militarization of Latin America. Now, um, the, the psychological warfare, of course, includes uh, propaganda that misinforms or distorts events. Right. And in mass communication, this day of you know, globalized, sophisticated media involves a variety of international media outlets. And what you do is you repeat a lie, you repeat it often, and in many ways. And then people become almost uh, immune to anything else but what they're hearing. And so let's talk lastly, we have one last question here, is what is happening here, uh, Dr. Victor, similar to the destabilization campaign that the CIA ran successfully in 73 against the socialist government of Salvador Allende in Chile? Yeah. Well, you don't even have to go back to 73. Uh, look what happened in, in Honduras. This is, this is the classic legal coup wherein the anti-Democrats that control the Congress and the Supreme Court legalize a violent coup. This is what they want. They want to be able to, um, to um, uh, control uh, the institutions, such as, um, such as the Congress, the, the coming parliamentary um, elections. Um, it's really important for people to understand that every single one of the dictators in Latin America have been backed by the USA. Um, and, and another thing that has happened is... And, and remember that the USA were the ones who overthrew Allende. And this isn't me speaking. This all came out through freedom of information. The Congress of the United States, um, you know, fully admitted that under Kissinger, this is what they did. They helped the opposition and the military in Chile to overthrow um, Chavez. Now, this is going to be, they can't do the same thing they did to Allende. Because Chavez has two things going for, three things going for him. One, what are they? extremely popular. Okay. I mean, the, the, it was the people who ran out in the streets and saved him from a sure death when they tried the coup against the men. And, and he knows that they will come out again. Right. Second of all, he's a military man. He is a soldier's soldier. And so the, 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 the soldiers of the military of Venezuela, which consider themselves a popular army, they are with the president. And the right. third thing is that Venezuela is not alone. That Venezuela is not alone because it has its, its neighbors through which it is united. It's united with its neighbors through energy, industry, telecommunications, infrastructure, solidarity. How did, how did this happen? Because Venezuela used to be very isolated. Through Telesur, which is the television of South America. Petrocaribe, which is a, a way in which Venezuela can provide petroleum to the poor countries of the Caribbean at uh, a very favorable price. 
Petrosur, which is the union of the petroleum companies of South America. El Alba, which has, of course, killed the free trade of the Americas because it is um, a, a venture of the South and Central American countries in solidarity, which they're going to help each other for all the issues that have to do with social justice, not just commerce. Mercosur, of course, which is a market which is related also to uh, social issues, and UNASUR, which, which was the death of the Monroe Doctrine because it said that it will be the South American countries who are responsible for its defense, not the United States. And, you know, it's really important for me to, uh, to say the following. Why is the government popular? Well, it isn't because of rhetoric, as the media loves to say. Oh, he's a populist because of his rhetoric. Well, do they think that Venezuelans are imbeciles? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they're going to follow this man because he speaks nicely? No, it's good because point. of the solid achievements. Good point. 90% of the people now have access to free and good health care. Literacy has been eliminated. Half of the population is, is in school learning something. Right. It achieved the millennium goals of the UN. There's food security. You know, this business about how the poor are going to suffer that this man said, well, I just laugh at that. We've got food security. We've got a whole, a whole distribution of food which used to be in private hands. We've got agricultural investment, which there was probably nil in the last 10 years. Land reform. You know, people are receiving land and, and help so that they know what to do with it. And, you know, when, when Chavez uh, was elected, there were 500 cooperatives in the country. There are now 70,000 of them. Unbelievable. And, and these are fishermen, and these are women, and these are people in shanty towns. And these are, this is Working private, yeah. private enterprise, by the way, you know, but in a cooperative way. Right. Uh, communal councils uh, wh- who are deciding what their communities need and how the money is going to be um, used for their needs. And the most important thing, of course, is the remarkable poverty reduction, which is uh, people at the UN are just blown by this. In, uh, when Chavez uh, became a president, uh, almost 80% of the population was poor. Well, the, in 2009, it's only 23%. Wow. And extreme poverty, when he became president, it was 21%, and right now it's 9%. So Venezuela right now has the lowest inequality rate in the region. And not, let's not talk about the rights the civil, the social rights, rights for women, rights for the Afro-Venezuelans, the indigenous people, children. All of this was really very important. So these are solid, solid achievements that have not gone away. Um, And uh, the things that uh, the uh, oligarchy and the middle classes love to um, emphasize are, for example, right now, the electricity. Oh, that that there there are uh, lights that go out, you know, blackouts and that right. there isn't enough water. Well, you know, um, most of the people in, in Venezuela who were poor, they didn't have water running in their houses, and they didn't have electricity. And now they do, which yeah. is huge. And now there's a huge demand. Why? Because the government has provided clean water, has provided electricity even to remote areas. Right. I'm and going to have to stop you there, Dr. Victor. Right. We've, we've run out of time, but this is obviously something uh, that's very important. I'm so glad that you brought out all this uh, information to counter... Uh, what Ian James, uh, the Bureau Chief of the Associated Press, said, because I think it's important uh, when we look at something to look at all aspects of something. And so we're going to watch closely as the elections approach, and uh, we'll have you back on the show. It was very enlightening. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for your call. Oh, well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay.
And that was Dr. Maria Paez-Victor. She is the Policy Director for the National Council for Latin American Women in Canada. She's also a member of the Louis Riel Bolivarian Circle in Toronto. Hi, I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And when I was thinking about today's show, the word border came into mind. So I start looking around and finding songs about borders. And it's a really eclectic collection of material. But we're going to start with Leonard Cohn with The Partisan. When they poured across the border I was cautioned to surrender, this I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often, I've lost my wife and children, but I have many friends. And some of them are with me An old woman gave us shelter Kept us hidden in the garret Then the soldiers came She died without a whisper There were three of us this morning I'm the only one this evening, but I must go on. The frontiers are my prison. Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing. Through the graves, the wind is blowing. Freedom soon will come. Then we'll come from shadow Shadow 
That was Leonard Cohen with The Partisan. A few years ago, a movie came around called El Norte, and I went to see it, and it was about Guatemalan people trying to get into the United States, trying to make their way north. And, uh, and Cy Khan wrote a song called El Norte. And every time I hear this song, I, my skin crawls, and, uh, and uh, I get pissed. I get angry at the fact that, we have to, that people have to, to live and struggle so hard to live. Here's Saikon with El Norte. For weeks we hid in ditches. For weeks we crawled through fields. For weeks we slept by day and ran by night. We sweated up the mountains. We shivered through the swamps. Till finally El Norte came in sight. Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out with your guns and dogs along the border line? Lying in the bushes, my daughter by my side, I watch the searchlights flashing off the guns. Do I tell her to go back when there's nothing left behind? Do I tell her just to close her eyes and run? Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out with your guns and dogs along the borderline? Now tell me, who makes the borders? Who draws the maps? Who strings barbed wire through the land? Who buys the bullets? Who pays the guards? Who puts the rifles in their hands? Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out? With your guns and dogs along the borderline. With your guns and dogs along the borderline. That was Cy Khan with El Norte. Makes you think, eh? Bob Carpenter was a great songwriter from British Columbia, and he also wrote about the border. Bob was a pretty neat character, and he was a really perceptive character. And here is his very famous Down by the Border. Out along the border Where the barren forest grows And no one knows Beyond the doubt And nobody cares to find out When the war Your old life, life. 
was a time But now it's come I likely still inside the tomb Down among the flowers With these eyes so newly born I could have sworn I heard them clear Their silent voices on my ear So the wind will carry Words of love found me to you And from my eyes The sun will shine I only hope it shines for you too Down along the border Well, the towers touch the sky And no one fears The passing years And nobody has to die And nobody has to die That was the late, great Bob Carpenter from Gibson's Landing, British Columbia, singing Down by the Border. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. I'll see you next week. That is Alert Radio for February 11, 2010. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And we hope that you'll be back with us next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And, of course, Mitch Podolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension Magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out CanadianDimension.com.